It's obvious again, been throughout the whole service this morning, the text and the title of the message comes right from the text. It is finished. Probably before we begin, I would like to turn once again just a page in your Bible to John chapter 20, because I'll refer to this, in verses 30 and 31. In that text, the writer of this fourth gospel, as God has used this man as a penman, records down for us these words in verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But, verse 31, these, including our text this morning, the message that we have before God, but these have been written. Why? So that, there's the purpose clause, you, think about it and put your name there as we read this text, so that you may believe, may believe what? May have faith in what? That Jesus, this one on the cross that we will talk about this morning, this person, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. That's what it means. He's the one, the Son of God. Why? And that believing, that is through the process of believing, faith, not works, not energy, not anyone else, but through him. What? You, put your name there, may have life in his name. And you say, but I have life. Yes, you have physical life. We're talking eternal life. What has been written and what we find in our text this morning was written purposely. It was written specifically so that as we come to the text, we could independently, subjectively, reading an objective text, read for ourselves that which would draw us to the very fact that indeed, this is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. Not just in general, but so that you could personally, I could personally have a relationship and life through that name. I happened by God's grace to have the opportunity to talk to a gentleman just the other day who I did not know he didn't know me from a hole in the wall. And as we, that discussion went on, he openly admitted, as we discussed, I do not have a personal relationship with God. He prays. He does cry out to God, but he openly admitted he did not have that personal relationship where he knew. And I had the opportunity to share with him how at one time, when I was asked the question, was I absolutely sure that if I died, I would go to heaven to get that person off my back? I told that individual, I said, yes, I lied. Because in my heart, I knew I didn't know, nor did I think that anybody could know. And I shared with that gentleman that not only was that the case, but now I do know, and as sure as I'm talking with you, I know that I have eternal life. Say, that's impossible. That's not what John said. John said that he's written the things that we are about to study so that we may know that we have life. It's not a question. One other thing I'd like to share with you as a congregation right away is when I was away two weeks ago, I happened to go in. I like to look at antiques. That's just a hobby of mine. When I say hobby, I don't collect them. I look at them and wish. <laughs> Although, I don't know why you'd want all the junk that was junk for other people. They're getting rid of it because they don't want it. But anyway, I like to look at all stuff, and I saw Bonomo, Turkish taffy, and I, did that ring a bell with some of you? Or the kids are saying, what? Okay, but anyway, all these antiques were there. But the key is, I walked into the back room, and we were with four or five people, and I said, you've got to come and see 
this plaque because this plaque on the wall said this, life, and here was the definition. Interesting. It said life is the opportunity that God gives you to determine where you will spend eternity. Boy, did that catch my eye. Wasn't scripture verse quoted? Folks, this is the time. It is not when you die. If you don't know the Savior now, you will not know him when you die. Nor will you spend time with him. This is the time. This is my time, and this is your time. And we will leave this world, but it's while we're living that it's determined whether you will have eternal life or not. And John says that. So we come to this text. We know why he's written it. He just told us. We've seen that. Those of you that have been with us study probably 45 times by now. And you'll see it again, by the way. But I want to remind us why John is writing. Where are we? Well, if you look at verse 17 of our text a little bit prior, just to remind you, we're at Golgotha. We're at the place of the skull. Jesus has been crucified, verse 18. Many know the history. Many have been taught it religiously. I was as a child. He has been crucified, and there were two other men. I'll refer back to that later. We've studied that text. But there were two other men there, one which does go to heaven, one which does go to hell. John wrote that so we would know that Jesus is the Christ. And while he's crucified, technically, if we were to compare all four Gospels, you would find, and it's a very famous situation, and many people have written about it, the Lord Jesus Christ makes seven statements while he's on that cross. John, interestingly enough, does not record them all. Why? He already told you. What he has recorded, he's recorded so that you will believe, including the thieves on the cross. And so he records three of the statements, the third statement that the Lord made, the fifth statement that the Lord made, and the sixth statement that the Lord made. It's interesting, he doesn't even deal with the statement of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the three statements that he has given us here have been purposely there. His crime has been posted, verse 19. What's his crime? Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, as we've studied that, you realize and know that they didn't want that to be put up there. They wanted it to be put up that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate, by the sovereign hand of God, says, uh-uh, what I've written, I've written. Why? Because he is the king of the Jews. And while that is the crime, we have already studied the fact that Jesus Christ, by Pilate's own admission, by Pilate's wife's own admission, by soldiers' admission, by others' admission, including the high priest, can find no guilt in him. So there really is no crime. He's not guilty of anything. So all they can post is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He's totally innocent. I want to remind you that this is the time of the Sabbath. This is Saturday, specifically, and it is Passover time that's going on. That is significant, by the way, because he's got to come down on the cross that day. And normally, with crucifixion, so you understand it, and it was a very common thing at this time for Roman soldiers to crucify people. They lived for days, many of them, not all of them, because some people who were crucified were then later lit up, and they became a torch. That's a fact. But those who were left on a cross, normally it would take days for them to die, and Jesus is there during the Passover time. So John concentrates on three specific things that we want to look at this morning. He concentrates on the soldiers, number one. Then interestingly enough, very important today, he concentrates secondly on Mary, his mother. And then thirdly, he concentrates on what has been accomplished. Why? So that you might understand, you might understand 
you might understand and come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why? So that you may have eternal life. Interestingly enough, this gentleman I spoke to did know John 3.16, which I talked to him about. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and this man quoted it, that whosoever believeth in him, believeth in him, faith, same thing we're seeing here, should not perish, future, but would have now, have, English language, eternal life. Have it now. Okay? So that's what our text is dealing with. Let's first consider the soldiers and his actions, or their actions. Look at verses 23 through the beginning of verse 25. I've already read it to you, but look at it, and you will see what took place as far as the soldiers are concerned. Now, to give you some background to it, historical setting here, what you find out is it was normal. When you go out through history and you talk about, first of all, even battles, when an army came in and there was a victory that was had and one nation would conquer another nation, they would go and they would take the spoils. That was part of their victory. They could take them back. Whatever was on the dead person, they took it. That was not uncommon even in crucifixions. When it came to a crucifixion, the soldiers that were assigned to follow through with the crucifixion, they took the spoils. They took what was left. It was theirs. It was almost like a payment, uh, a bonus, if you will. Now, you and I would sit back and say, wait a minute, a bonus getting somebody else's clothes? And that's because you got too big a closet. That's because of Walmart's and uh, Jordan's and whoever else I might name uh, that spoiled us. You probably got up this morning and said, what pair of shoes am I going to wear? And all of this stuff. That was not the way it was in Jesus' day. In fact, the clothing and the sandals and what they did own were handmade. They didn't run them through a machine. And they were valuable. People did, some people didn't have any sandals. Others didn't have certain clothes. And so it was of value to them. That's why even with the soldiers in battle, they took things. Yes, they would take other possessions that were there, but even the clothing to them was of tremendous value. Now, it's obvious in verse 23, you look at it again, that there are four soldiers that are involved. And that was common. That is actually explained in the book of Acts. That was very common for them to assign these four soldiers. And what did they do? They were going to take the articles that were left on the one that they are crucifying. How many articles are there? There's five with the Lord Jesus Christ, not four, which presents a problem for them. What do you mean? Look at the text and you see it. He says, they took the outer garments and made four pots, a pot, and also, uh, and the tunic. So he's got five pots. Now, all kinds of commentaries guess and I'm guessing, too, I have no idea what the other four garments or four pots were, but the common thing that would have been there would have been sandals, number one. The second thing would have been an outer garment, number two. And the third one, they called it a girdle, but it was a belt as we know it. Those would have been three parts, and there's a lot of debate about the fourth one, but the most common with the Jews was a head. Now, he had a crown of thorns. So I'm not so sure that that one's correct or not. I don't know. But that's not the point. The point is whatever four garments he had, it could have been the loincloth, they took those, but then they noticed that there's another one, that this is even more valuable, and it's the tunic. Now, what was the tunic? It was a long garment that was closest to the body, and it was of great, great value back then. This was more important than the other ones, and that's why when they saw it, that it was one piece, it was uh, specifically woven, as it says. It was seamless, a special. They didn't want to just rip it. Everybody had a part. They didn't want to take this and say, all right, you have this part, and it would have been useless. And they saw our value for it. So, and you know, I can't really, and just allow me a little grace here, compare it to everything today. But I was trying to think, you know, like today, what will we compare it to? So for those of you that know something about working out and athletics or whatever, what I thought is like the Amarol. I think that's what it's called. 
I got some, but I think it's the one that's closest, you, you know, to the body and so forth, and whatever else is worn, that's what even corrects the temperature. Well, it was a valuable, and those, by the way, are expensive. And that's kind of what it was. Now, what were the soldiers doing? The soldiers are there, and they're just doing what they normally do. But I want you to recognize this. Why? People talk about the Bible. They talk about it being written by men. By the way, it was written by men. Who would you expect it written by? Aliens? Animals? No, you, you, know, you might say, Pastor Dan, you're being facetious. No, I want you to think. Because God wants us to think. Of course it was written by man for communication. But it was inspired by God. God was behind it and he used the mechanism of men. If you wanted a message to get to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren after you die, who would you write it by? Your cats? Somebody from another planet? Of course not. You see, men ask these questions. You've got the answers. I want you to see that. Now, why did I say that? It's the same thing when it comes to fulfilled scripture. One of the most overwhelming things that God gives all of us to see and to witness is the evidence of the fulfillment of scripture that points to the fact, and that's why John wrote this, right? That Jesus is the Christ. Why? These are professional soldiers. What are they trained to do? Help me. Huh? Don't have to be afraid. Kill, right? Fight, kill, death. You know, that's what they're trained to do. They're not kind. They don't walk up to somebody else and say, I don't want to kill you today. I just want my sword. That isn't it. They, they, they're trained for that. They take the spoils, period. None of them, none of them. How many of you have a Bible in your hand today? Put it up in the air. Don't get embarrassed if you don't. I'm just looking. Look at all those Bibles. Yeah, you can put up those uh, iPads too. That's a Bible. Yeah. <laughs> New generation, right? That's okay. All right, but you get you've got these Bibles in your. The soldiers didn't have that. Why do you say that? Think about how significant how significant this passage is. These soldiers did not crucify Christ and turn around and say, hey, wait a minute, time out. I know a 1,000 years ago, it said that we better part these garments by throwing dice. So we better do it. Oh, you didn't have Soldier Bill that turned around and said, hey, guys, wait a minute, hold it. I'm reading my Bible here. It's time for us to fulfill scripture. I want you to see that because people even make claims about religious, well, they wrote this after the fact. And No, 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 these are professional soldiers. All they care about is killing him, doing their job, and getting their rewards. And yet you notice that over a thousand years earlier, you read it in Psalm 22. I will repeat it to you, but you read it. Psalm 22, listen to verse 18. Here's what it said thousands of years before this, or a thousand years before. What? Here it is. And they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And by the way, this is not like the New Year's resolutions where people make predictions today and people talk about these people who know the future and they get 80% right. No good. If they're 99% right, they're no good. God is always 100% accurate. And he said then that when the time comes, not only describing the crucifixion, there is such tremendous fulfillment of Psalm 22 in this passage, it is overwhelming. Even the fact of crucifixion. But they talked about even the soldiers casting lots, and now it says in our text, look at it, in verse 24, that they divided the outer garments among them, and they cast lots. Why? Therefore the soldiers did these things. Why? He said earlier in verse 24, to fulfill the scriptures. The soldiers could care less about fulfilling scripture, folks. This is overwhelming evidence to you if you've got half an eye open. This is the Christ. It had to be. These soldiers could care less. And yet even soldiers, independent of all religion, in fact, Rome had many, many gods. They don't care about this. 
They're not looking to fulfill scripture. And yet, by God's sovereign hand, they did exactly what God said they would do in exactly the time that God said they would do it. Why? To show you that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They weren't religious. They didn't have the scriptures. And the evidence is absolutely overwhelming, even the soldiers fulfilling. And by the way, so you know, all of the gospel accounts, and I won't take the time, but you turn to every single one of the gospel accounts are sure to point this out. Some of the gospel accounts point out some facts and some point out others. All of them point out that the soldiers cast the lots. Why? Because even the soldiers point out the fact that this is the Messiah fulfilling scripture. What were the Jews looking for? They should have been looking for the fulfillment of scripture. But the hardness of man's heart is there. And there could be some of you that are here today, I have no idea, that are just saying, I just don't see the evidence. I won't give in. I've heard about him being the Christ. I've heard about him being the only way. There's just no way. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders were doing. They had in front of them fulfillment of scriptures. They had the Old Testament. And the soldiers were fulfilling it right in front of them. And they refused to believe. But John says, I've written these things so that you can believe. Jesus is the Christ. So that's the soldiers' actions. Then what have you got? Next thing you've got is we find the Savior's compassion. Verses 25, the second part of it, on through 27. You look at it. You've got four women, according to John's account, standing there at the cross. And as they stand there, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. And Jesus is on the cross, and he looks at his mother. Can you imagine that scene? Could you as a mother, those of you that are in that situation, picture this? Your son... Remember how your son came into the world? And she's remembering this was a special situation. And she was told about this before, how it would hurt. And now she's looking, and there she is helpless with her son being mocked, her son being crucified, and he's innocent. The soldiers are mocking. And you see the compassion of the Lord. He has been, as I described it to you, put through scourging. The crown of thorns has gone on his head. The nails have gone through the hands and the feet. The pain is excruciating physically. He's being mocked emotionally, being rejected by man spiritually. And through it all, the continued compassion. Don't talk to me about where is the love of God with all that's going on in the world. Open your eyes. What you're seeing in the world is man's sin. That's why the wickedness that happens over and over and over again. God's love is seen in sending him. And he's even got compassion. And when he says, behold thy son, he is not talking about himself. The text makes it obvious. Because he then turns to the one he loved, that's John, standing nearby, and he says, behold thy mother. What you find here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember now, he's the oldest in the family. He has the responsibility. Where is Joseph at this stage? Honestly, we don't know. But every indication as you go through the scriptures in what would have normally happened with families, he's probably died and she's a widow because he's not even mentioned. He's not even around right now. And so where does the responsibility fall? It falls on Jesus' shoulders. He doesn't miss that one either. Who's he going to turn the responsibility over to? His brothers? I'll come back to that in a second. He can't. Why? They don't like him. They think, and it's literally said in Scripture, he's out of his mind. Later, they come to believe that he's the Christ, by the way. But at this time, he can't trust unto him. And notice the care and compassion. He's probably, 
in my personal opinion, he is, fulfilling Exodus 20, which says, honor thy father and thy mother. And he's honoring his mother by looking out for her future. And he says that. Notice this. From that hour, his disciples took her into his household. He looks to someone who he can trust, someone who is a believer. And John is to take care of his mother. And that's what happens. Now, let me clarify a couple of things right away. Mary was a very special person. No question about it. She was chosen by God to bring by virgin birth the Savior of the world into this life as the Word of God was made flesh, as God with us. God left his glory and took on flesh as the perfect God-man, the only one who was fully God, fully man. Why? Because God loved us. And she was chosen to be the vessel through which that birth would come. Is she special? Absolutely. Unique, without question. Is she, or did she, let me address a couple of things, because of my background in growing up. Was she a virgin all her life? Absolutely not. Say, Pastor Dan, turn with me in your Bibles quickly to Matthew chapter 1. The concept of Mary being a virgin for all her life is blasphemy. She didn't. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Not because of my intelligence at all. It's because of what God reveals. Notice what it says in verse 25. But he kept her a virgin until the birth of the son who is called Jesus. You say, well, that's no evidence. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Just very quickly. Matthew chapter 12. This was an eye-opener to me when I studied my Bible. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Is that what I want? Yes. While he was stand, still speaking to the crowds, behold, watch, his mother and brothers, these are half-brothers, obviously, were standing outside speaking, seeking to speak to him. That's not enough? Go to chapter 13. Same book, verses 55 and 56. This isn't Pastor Dan's opinion. That's why John wrote, so that you could see these things for yourselves. In verse 55, it says, Is this not the carpenter's son, referring to Jesus? Now watch what they say. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon? He's naming specifics in Judas. And watch this, verse 56. And his what? Sisters, plural. Mary had at least five more children. That's what the scriptures say. And he says, his sisters, are they not all with us? And so, number one, she did not remain a virgin. Number two, she is not a co-redemptist. What does that mean? There is too much made of her today because there are those who would say that she is a co-redemptist. I was in the Vatican about a month ago. I saw it with my own eyes. Of course, I knew it growing up. The concept of Mary being the one that can also redeem us. She can't save anybody. In fact, she needed to be saved. You say, Pastor Dan, you're really getting out of line. Really? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Don't take my word for it. Look for yourselves. Why are you pointing this out, Pastor Dan? So you might believe that Jesus is the Christ? Might have life through his name? Here's Mary talking in Luke chapter 1. And notice what Mary said. How do you know it's Mary? Listen to verse 46. Chapter 1, Luke, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God. What are the next two words? My Savior. The only Savior that's ever been sent into this world is Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. 
not his begotten son and mother, not his begotten son and you, not his begotten son and a church. He sent his only begotten son that through him people might have eternal life. You say, yeah, but I know, but I need to, I need to pray to Mary because Mary was his mother and she, no, you can go directly to God. There's only one mediator. Turn me to one other passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Take a look what it says. I think it's verse 5. I got to get there. I don't have one of those computers where I just hit a couple of buttons and I'm there. I got to turn pages. Okay. Verse 5 is what I want, I think. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is how many gods? One God. How many mediators? One mediator. Who's the mediator between? God and men, generic. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus, who what? Gave himself as a ransom for all. There's only one meeting. And so what I'm trying to point out is Mary is very significant, and the Lord saw that, and he had compassion, and he took care of her as a mother, as a mother who still had family. And he committed that to John. And Mary is very significant and does have a unique role. However, she is not a co-redemptist. She is not to be prayed to, to get to God. You go to God directly through Jesus Christ. And she did not remain a virgin. So he commits that. Why was all of this going on? Go back to John. He shows us that the soldiers fulfilled scripture. The Lord takes care of scripture and honoring his mother and taking care of her as the oldest of the family. And then this happens, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus is taking care of things, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. If you recall, it says in John chapter 4, you can mark these down, I am not going to turn to them. John chapter 4, verse 34. In John chapter 9, verse 4, he says that he came to do the will of the Father. And all that the Father gave him to do, excuse me, he would fulfill. What is that? To come into the world to save sinners. And now everything's been fulfilled. And he says this, I'm thirsty. It's one of the sayings. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put the sponge full of sour wine upon the branch of hyssop, brought it up to his mouth. Why? Why would this happen? Why would this go on? And I also should mention this. This is not the same one that he refused. Sometimes people get that confused. Turn with me to one text. I think it's important for you to see. Mark chapter 15. Go with me there for a second. That's why we're to study the scriptures. So we don't go on what someone else thinks, but we see these things for ourselves. There's two actual instances regarding a situation where drink is offered to the Lord, and sometimes they're confused and they're thought of as one. They're not. And what helps us is Mark, in chapter 15, he helps us out a bit, because when the Lord was on the way to the cross, and he's about to be crucified, and the nails to be driven into his hands, they offered him something the first time with a sedative. Why? So he wouldn't feel the pain until the, until the actual, and then it would wear off, but the nails, he'd be able to bear them. That's found in Luke, Mark chapter 15. Just look at verse 23. If you want, let's go back to 22. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of skulls. See, so when they bring him there, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. What we're looking at in John is not this incident. How do you know that? I'll show you in a second. This is when they offered it with the myrrh. They offered him with a sedative that he wouldn't feel the pain of the nails. Temporary. It's like going to the dentist and having the dentist, if you will, not pleasant thought for a lot of people, but giving you a Novocaine so that whenever he's about to do his work, you don't feel it. Well, he, didn't re he refused that. He wanted the full, full thing. But you'll notice in the same text in Mark chapter 15, now go down to verse 36. However, after he cries out in verse 35, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's already on the cross now. 
Someone ran, same writer, and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him the drink, saying, let's see. That's a separate incident. That's what we're looking at in John. Why did he do that? Why did he want, at this particular time, picture it. He's hanging on the cross. He's in tremendous pain physically. He's done everything. His mouth is dry, and he wants to say something. Does he just want to whisper it? No, he wants everybody to hear it. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Since we're in Mark, I could go to all four Gospels, but I want you to see it. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37. Jesus uttered, what does it say? A loud cry. He needed the moisture of this cheap wine. This was not a sedative. That wine was there for the soldiers. And if you look at your history and read it, it was also there, listen, to prolong the crucifixion. They didn't want them to die quick. This was not a sedative. This was to quench the thirst. Sometimes people in a hospital, they're so dry, they just need those, those ice chips, so they need something put on them. That's the concept. And so they take the wine. The Lord has a purpose. He's got something that he wants everybody to hear. Go back with me to John chapter 9. What is it? Here it is. John chapter 19. I said 9. Sorry. John chapter 19. They bring it to his mouth. Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he did receive this one. See, he refused the other, but he receives this one. And I just showed you, it's two different situations. And what does he say? One word in the original language. It is finished. And he cries it out so everybody can hear it. It's finished. What does that mean? The literal translation of this Greek word is it's Paid in, help me, full. It's done. No more debt. What does that mean? What does it mean to you when somebody says paid in full? It's over. You can't add anything to it. You can't look anyplace else. The debt is paid. That's why John put this one here. It's paid in full. Can you imagine your mortgage? The bank says, hey, look, I can't tell you who it is, but somebody came and your debt is paid in full. No, no, I'm going to pay you $1,000 next month, and a month after that, or $2,000. I just love to pay you money. I want to do it myself. I don't want it from anybody else. That's what people are doing. When you refuse to, to take the payment that Jesus Christ has given, when you refuse to take the payment that God in his love sent, you are saying to God, I don't want it. Don't tell me it's paid in full. Let me play church. Let me look to the saints. Let me pray to Mary. Let me pray to other saints. Let me try to do it myself, my good works. Let me outweigh the bad. It won't happen because the wages of sin is death and all men are sin men generic, men and women, boys and girls, are all sinners and have come short of the standard of God and the only thing that could pay the debt was someone who was capable of doing it who was without sin. And the only one is Jesus Christ. That's why God sent him into the world. And when he died, he cried out, and he said, the debt is paid in full. My father is satisfied. Why? So that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. What does that mean? If you don't believe in him, you will perish. And you will decide that now while you're alive. I've done many a funeral over the year. I've buried my mother. I've been there for the burial of my sister, two sisters. I've experienced other relatives, people in this church, people who I've known, people who I have not known. All of them who have died determined 
while they were alive whether they had eternal life or not. You say, I don't know. You want a clearer picture? Go with me to Colossians chapter, I don't know how clear it can be, but let me try Colossians chapter 3 with you. Turn there. Colossians chapter 3. How many here are old enough to remember the old cowboys and Indians? <laughs> Not so many hands today. Okay? But you know the concept. It actually even happened, you know, you go back, not just cowboys and Indians, other periods of time. But what would happen when a debt was paid, they would put it to a post. Paid in full. You've probably seen signs and stuff like that. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Let's take a look at verses 13 and 14. Bear with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just watch this. Just as the Lord forgave who? You. I have written these things so that who may believe? You may believe. You. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you should also, what? You should forgive others. Why? Watch. Behold, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Uh, that's not what I wanted. What is it? What does it say that he nailed it to his the tree? Huh? 15? Oh, 213. I mean, thank you. That's right. I'm, I should look at my notes. Sorry. It's 213 and 14. Sorry. Carried away here. Thanks for the help. Oh, yeah, 213. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, who's that? When you. You were dead. You say, but I'm alive physically. Yeah, but there's no relationship with God, just like that man that I talked about. No relationship with him. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and the uncircumcision of flesh. Now watch. He made you. Did you do it? Did church do it? Did relatives do it? Did religion do it? No. He made you alive together with him. How did he do that? Having forgiven us, how many? All. You say, I don't know, Pastor Dan. I have no idea of everybody's situation. I don't know, Pastor Dan. I committed murder in the past. Well, you shouldn't have, but he'll forgive that. You say, I don't know, Pastor Dan, I committed adultery in the past. He'll forgive that. You say, I don't know, Pastor Dan, I'm going through life and I, I, I committed abortion and it's really, I'm, he'll forgive that. There is nothing that Jesus won't forgive. Christ paid the entire debt. Look, look what he says. There is no one that's too bad a sinner that can't be forgiven. He's forgiven us all our transgressions. How did he do it? There's a participle here in verse 14. Having canceled out. He canceled it out. What did he cancel out? The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What are those decrees? You have lied. You have cheated. You have hated people. You have done evil things. Those are the decrees. You're a sinner. He canceled it out. How in the world did he cancel it out? Which was hostile against us. He took it out of the way. Well, how did he do that? Did he just say, I'll overlook it? No. What does it say in verse 14? Help me out, folks. Having what? Nailed it to his cross. Paid in Full. He paid the debt. If you are here today and you've heard the message of salvation over and over again and you're doubting, listen, don't believe anything that I tell you. You say, you've got to be kidding me. No, I mean that. Look at it yourself. I had to do that. I grew up believing that Jesus Christ came into this world. I grew up believing that Mary was a virgin, all of which is true. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I believe that Jesus Christ opened the gates of heaven. I believe that he rose the third day. I believed all of those things, and I was a sinner doomed to hell. I was lost. Until I came personally to understand that he didn't open the gates of heaven for me to try to get in on good works. 
He didn't open the gates of heaven so I could try to do it by religion. He finished the work. God is satisfied with that payment in full. And I came for just exactly what John said to personally me, just as it says you, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. It is only through faith in the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ who came and he was the only one that could pay for sinner, uh, sinner's debt. No one else, as Pastor Chris mentioned this morning, this would be the equivalent of somebody saying to everybody, and I hope I cover everybody in the church, I think I will, saying to you, you have a trillion dollar debt that's got to be paid tomorrow. You say impossible. You're right. But somebody who's got a trillion dollars could come up and pay it for you. God says you have a debt as a sinner that cannot be excused by the saints, by Adam, by Moses, by Daniel, by David, by Mary, by Peter, by Paul. But the one that can pay it is me. And God said, I love you so much. I'm coming into the world, and I'll pay it myself. And he nailed it to the cross, and it's finished. There is nothing to add, folks. And those of you who have trusted in Christ, it's amazing love. Who can describe it? We walk as Christians. We talk as Christians without ever considering the magnitude of what God has done for us. No wonder he says, Paul, it's an unspeakable gift. Salvation's a gift, folks. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll just close with this because I never got to it in the text. I had a ton of verses in Hebrews that I was going to turn to. But I'll tell you this. It really hit home with me. And I'll give it to you to read, those of you that want to do it, because many of you know my background. Growing up as a Roman Catholic, I was an altar boy. In fact, I was at a wedding yesterday where I was an altar boy when I was a young man. And it reminded me of a number of things. And as I, I look back on that and the altar boy and, and all of that and, and believing that Jesus Christ had, had come and so forth and, and thought I could do it by religion and having that concept of, of heaven being opened, I understood the concept of the priest giving a sacrifice day after day after day after day. And in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse, in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, the Jews would bring these sacrifices and they did it day after day after day in the animals. Why? Did that take away sin? Never. The book of Hebrews says, but this man who was appointed by God one time offered himself as a sacrifice for sin forever. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Those sacrifices can never take away sin. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And before he died, no one took his life. He bowed. Normally took days. He willingly came and he willingly gave up his life back to the Father. You trusted in Christ today? If you haven't, you are without excuse. You can be like the Jewish leaders and say, yeah, I heard it. Pastor Dan pointed out even some scripture that was fulfilled. And by the way, Psalm 69 was also fulfilled in him saying, I thirst. I didn't even get into all of that. There is so much scripture that's fulfilled here. You've had the evidence of fulfilled scripture. You have the evidence of the Apostle John, you've had the evidence of Mary herself saying that he was the Savior. You are without excuse. The debt's been paid. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Do it today. You say, I, I need time to think. You aren't guaranteed to walk out these doors. I have been in the presence of people where after I was with them, I never saw them again because in moments they passed away. The church in North Andover, there was an accident and I stood at the side of a gentleman whose house was two blocks away. Came down the street, I don't know why, whether he just took his eyes off the road or what happened, hit a pole, and I stood next to his body while Pat Crockett called for an ambulance, and he died right there. You have no guarantees. Every time you go to bed, you don't know if you're getting up. What are you waiting for? It's determined while you're alive. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are no words. We can say that we love you. We can say thank you. And we mean it sincerely, but they're words. But Father, to really comprehend how you loved us first. And out of your love, you sent your son, the only one who could pay the debt, and he paid the debt for sin, satisfying your righteousness. And that now is a free gift you've made available to men and women and boys and girls to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to have the gift of eternal life. Not just physical life here, but to spend eternity in heaven. We thank you that it's not by works that we do. We thank you that it's not by religion, it's not by relatives, but it's only by the work of Jesus Christ. And those of us who have believed and have been given eternal life, we do come and say thank you and ask that you'd help us to live for you. Those who haven't, I pray, Father, it is not by my words, it is not by the words of anyone here, but the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and opening up the heart. It's our prayer that anyone here that does not know Christ, that this is the hour, that right there in the pew, that they would recognize themselves as sinners and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved right now. We look to you for that and thank you for this time and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.